invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. Mark 10, 35 through 45, as we continue our life-changing look at Jesus. This is God's word beginning in Mark 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want, to, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This morning, we're going to have three headings to help us make our way through this text. The first heading is selfish supplication. Selfish supplication. Supplications, of course, are requests. They're petitions made to God. Now, selfish supplications are attempts to use God to get what you want. And in our text this morning, we catch a couple of the disciples in the act of making a selfish supplication. Once again, this morning, we find Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. He's still about 10 days away from being crucified. It's the final countdown, so to speak, though. At this point... Jesus is still a free man. He's still able to go wherever he chooses. And yet, he deliberately heads for Jerusalem, knowing that it's going to cost him his life. Now, how do we know that he knows it's going to cost him his life? Well, he just told his disciples, if you recall from two weeks ago, that it's going to cost him his life. Look at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. 
And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. That's quite a conversation to be a part of. That, that's quite a conversation to be having with the guys that have been living with you for the last three or so years. Perhaps the mood would have been similar to having your best friend or one of your closest friends sit across from you and tell you that he's He's got some rare illness. Even though he looks perfectly fine today, within 10 days he'd be dead. If you were in that kind of a conversation, I imagine you'd be shocked. You'd be horrified. It'd be like getting punched in the gut with grief, and disbelief. How could this happen? Which is what makes the conversation between Jesus and James and John in our text so bizarre. Hey, uh, Jesus, I know that you just kind of got done telling us that you're going to die and everything. All that flogging and shame and getting nailed to the cross, that sounds pretty bad. But hey, could you do me a real quick favor before you die? Before you die, I'd like for you to promise me that you will do whatever it is I ask you to do. Jesus replies, what do you want me to do for you? Well... When you get around to setting up your kingdom, you keep talking about that kingdom. Well, me and my brother here, well, we would like to be, you know, the highest, most glorious, most authoritative to other people in your kingdom. Church, that is a selfish supplication these guys in full view of Jesus and his coming death and resurrection they're trying to now use him for their own selfish gain and notice how they do it they tell Jesus how great he is. Oh, oh Jesus, this is going to be your kingdom, right? This is going to be you and your glory. You're on the throne. You're the great. You're the mighty king. Now, if you could just make me and my brother here almost as great as you. Let me sit on your right side and let's give him the left. This selfish supplication, this selfish 
request was infuriating to the ten other disciples. Verse 41 tells us that they became indignant towards James and John. They were, they were furious. Here's the thing. Based on Jesus' response and what he says, the teaching that follows all of this, it sure seems that these ten other furious disciples, they're not indignant because of this calloused, selfish request made by James and John. No, they're indignant because James and John beat them to the same question. They too desire to be first in the kingdom. That's why the question made them so mad. They wanted the power. They wanted the glory. They wanted to sit at the right hand of Jesus. But those sneaky two little brothers, they wormed their way into Jesus before they could get there. What a sorry scene this is. Followers of Jesus, people who've spent the last three years with Jesus, people who've seen him in action, they've seen his love, they've seen his compassion, they're now fully aware that he's going to suffer and die and raise from the dead. They've seen him as he served person after person giving self selflessly and yet they still go to Jesus with their selfish self-serving self-promoting request And I have to pause and ask myself, is this how I treat Jesus? Do I tell him how great he is one minute and then hit him with a list of selfish requests the next? Jesus, I just want to come to you in prayer and acknowledge you and how incredible you are, how wonderful you are, the things you've accomplished are your your life your suffering your death your resurrection now if you could just give me everything i want that would be great you know fix my loved ones make me skinny give me more stuff solve all my problems and could you please let me kill a huge buck this fall Oh, yeah. And can I go to heaven, too, when it's all over? Amen. Look, that's not really how we pray, but, man, that's sort of how we pray. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I that much different than James and John? Because I know I'm not. You see... In verse 36, Jesus asks a question. It's, it's what I like to call an x-ray question. It's the kind of question that reveals what's going on deep inside of us, in our heart. Jesus asks the question, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me 
to do for you. You see, church, how we answer that question reveals a lot about us. What do you want Jesus to do for you? You see, as we answer that question, it, it shows us whether or not we're sold out for his kingdom or we're still into trying to build our own. As we answer Jesus, we says, what, what would you like for me to do to you it, or for you? It reveals whether or not our desires for his will to be done in my life and with my family, my job, my career, or if I'm still wanting my will to be done. I'm still trying to control and manipulate and make things go according to my perfect sovereign plan rather than his. As we ask, all right, as we answer Jesus's question, what do you want me to do for you? Our answer reveals our motives. Are you, are you praying because you want to follow Jesus and have him continue to shape you to become more and more like him and continue to just carve off all the sin and all the selfishness and all the things that gets in, in the way of you being like him? Or does it reveal a heart that just wants Jesus to serve you? Because after all, you run the show. What do you want Jesus to do for you? What does your answer reveal about you? Heading number two, that was selfish supplication. Heading number two is sacrificial suffering. Sacrificial suffering. Look back at verse 35. I'm going to read a big chunk of this. Verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they come up to him and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> I'm sorry, is that not our attitude? Jesus, we know you're all wise and we know you know everything and you're all powerful, but hey, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Verse 36, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, Jesus, in his unending patience for his people, in his grace towards his followers and wisdom, he redeems 
their selfish supplication, their selfish request. And he's going to turn this into an opportunity to teach them and to prepare them for what's going to happen to them, namely sacrificial suffering. Now, I want you to know that what I'm about to say, I might be wrong. I could qualify everything I say with that phrase, but I especially want to point it out to you right now. I might be wrong, but it seems that Jesus is teaching that sitting in those two chairs that James and John wants to sit in, that in order to get into those chairs, it's based... The criteria is based on two things. The first criteria, this is not very controversial, but the first criteria is that God the Father must grant the person to sit there. That's what we get out of verse 40. Those seats are for those for whom it has been prepared. Prepared by whom? By the Father. That's who would prepare that. Okay? So number one, in order to sit in those chairs, it's got to be prepared for you by the Father. Secondly, God the Father makes the decision who sits on those two seats based upon a person's Christ-likeness, especially in imitating his loving service to others and his suffering for the sake of the gospel. I get this because what Jesus says immediately following this, he's going to instruct these guys on suffering, and he's going to instruct them on serving like a servant or a slave. Now, let's take a deep breath and think about this. Jesus. Jesus is the quintessential suffering servant and he will one day have every knee bow down to him and confess that Jesus is Lord he will occupy that seat of all honor and praise and glory but the path to get to that throne was the path of being a suffering servant if anybody knows what it means to choose to be a suffering servant it's Jesus he left all the glories the pleasures the comforts of heaven he took on human flesh taking on the form of a servant a slave denying himself stuff he could have had to come to earth why to suffer for you to serve you and all the world for that matter. He is the quintessential suffering servant. And the two people that are going to sit in glory on his right and his left, those two places of honor, are two places that are second and third only to Jesus himself. And they will have the honor of sitting in those two seats because they too have suffered for the gospel and lovingly served others in some quantifiable way that qualifies them to sit in those two seats. So here's my conclusion. And again, I might be wrong. 
When James and John ask to sit in those two chairs, they don't have a clue how much suffering and serving it requires. It seems that the people who will occupy those two chairs will suffer and serve more than anyone else in the history of the church, all out of their love and devotion for Jesus and his people. That's what I think is happening here. That's why Jesus says in verse 38, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able, he says, to drink the cup that I drink? And let me remind you, in the Old Testament as well as the book of Revelation, the, the cup is often a metaphor for suffering. And with Jesus in particular, it's a redemptive suffering. And that cup is filled with the undiluted, overflowing wrath of God, which he will drink on the cross while he suffers for the sins of his people. Okay? Are you able to drink that cup, Jesus asked, or to be baptized with the baptism to which I am baptized? And he's not talking about water baptism here, nor is he talking about spiritual baptism here. What he's talking about is his immersion into the sufferings of humanity of which he will suffer more than anyone else. Why? Because not only did Jesus die an excruciating, horrible death on a cross, while he was on that cross, he was paying not just for a sin, not just for your sin, but for all the sins of his people. He is talking about here a level of suffering for others that he's chosen, unlike anything we could imagine. And so he looks at James and John in the context of talking about his right and the left and those, those seats of honor. He says, do you, do you have any idea what you're asking? Are, are you able to pay the price to sit in those two chairs? And what do they say? Verse 39. They don't know what he's talking about. Verse 39. They said to him, we are able. We are able. Overconfidence? Probably. What I want to point out to you right now, though, is I just want to point to you point out the fact that James and John, part of Jesus' inner circle along with Peter, they're there, they're asking this selfish question, they want to sit in these seats, and now they're over-promising to Jesus, overconfident themselves, but what we're going to see in just a moment is that Jesus takes these two ordinary, unschooled men, and he makes them turns them, transforms them into incredible, bold beacons of his glory. After his death, burial, and resurrection, they're given the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus, again, in an effort to teach and prepare them, he goes on there in verse 39. Jesus said to them, he says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. Now, he's not talking about the cup of God's wrath that pays for the sins of his people. He's talking about suffering in general. You will drink of the same kind of suffering. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. You will be immersed in the sufferings of the Calvary Road as a faithful follower of mine, Jesus says. You know, something that we do often forget, and I'm going to move on past this passage into the book of Acts as Jesus does transform James and John. Sometimes we forget is that John, he was the first apostle to be arrested, thrown into jail, and stand trial after Jesus ascended into heaven, him along with Peter there in Acts chapter 4. And as he's standing trial and for preaching Jesus, he's standing trial in front of the same court, the Sanhedrin, that had convicted Jesus to death. And they say, hey, look, guy, <laughs> you need to stop preaching in that name. And what's John say? He says, I can't help myself. I can't help but tell everybody about what I've seen and what I've heard. Let me let you in on a little secret. That's why, church, we just keep putting Jesus before you as, as written about in his word. We want you to see him. We want you to behold him because once you see Jesus and you taste him and you experience him, you can't help it. You can't help but be different. You can't help but want to be with him and want everybody else to be with him. And so John... James, in their experience with Jesus, they, they get to the point, it takes them a while, they can't shut up about Jesus. Well, that Sanhedrin, they, they warn James, they warn John, don't preach about Jesus no more. But what do we find James and John and the rest of the apostles doing then in Acts chapter 5? Preaching Jesus. And this time, that same court, not only do they threaten these guys, they rough them up, they beat them up, and they, as they experience the cup of sufferings, as they're being baptized, immersed into the sufferings of Jesus, what do we see James and John and the rest of the apostles doing? They're rejoicing because they were accounted worthy to suffer the same sufferings as Jesus. That's crazy. Unless Jesus is better than everything in every way. Now what our Bibles don't tell us, but tradition does, church history does, is that this same James, the brother of John, He's actually the first apostle to be killed for his faith. Stephen, 
there in Acts chapter 7. He's the first Christian martyred. Shortly thereafter, James is the first apostle killed for his faith. Tradition tells us that there's a guy who pressed charges against James because James wouldn't shut up about Jesus and it was becoming illegal and so he wanted to pursue the death penalty against James and he did. During that trial, the man who pressed charges against James was so impacted by James's faith, his love for Jesus, his commitment to Jesus, the very man who had pressed charges against him himself became a Christian during the trial. Clement of Rome, he writes, when James was brought to the trial, the man who brought James to court and was the cause of his trouble, after seeing James condemned and sentenced to death, was so moved with his, in his heart by James' faith that he too went to the executioner and confessed himself on his own accord to be a Christian. And so the two of them were beheaded together. AD 36. That's what seeing and knowing Jesus can do to a person. I want him more than anything because he's better than everything in every way. So let's go back to this conversation that Jesus is having with James and John before Acts happens. He looks at those two men and he says, are you able? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they say, we are able. Overconfidence or faith, or maybe a little of both. My question today isn't, are James and John able? It's, are you able? Are you able? Because Jesus said, if anyone is unwilling to take up his cross and follow him, they're not worthy of him. Matthew 10, 38. Sacrificial suffering. Heading number three is selfless service. Selfless service. So we've seen the selfish supplication, the sacrificial suffering, and now let's consider selfless service. Look at verse 41. Jesus continues. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to him, to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus, he's got his 12 guys there, and he says, time out, kids. <laughs> We're not going to fight over who gets to sit in the front seat, so to speak. Instead, I'm going to teach you all how to be great. He says in verse 42, the second half, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones, they exercise authority over them. He says, you know how in our hearts we long to be the ones in control. We long to be the ones in that seat of authority, bossing everybody else around. You know how much in our own hearts we love to be helped rather than help. We love to be served. We don't love to serve. You know how the world does it, Jesus says. But in verse, verse 43, he says, but it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. He says, in my kingdom, that's not how people operate. In my kingdom, where I'm king, whoever wants to be great must be a servant. In order to be first, in order to sit in the chairs, you must be a slave to all. What marks a follower of Jesus is not power, it's not authority, it's not our piety, it's slavery. It's sacrificial service to others. It's serving all the people around us. You see, what we need to remember is not only is Jesus the quintessential suffering servant, if we're going to follow in his ways, if we're going to walk as Jesus walks, then that means we too will be suffering servants. We suffer and we serve. And here's the wild part. It's not because we have to. It's because we know Jesus. And we're following as closely as we can in his steps who left heaven took on the form of a servant and became the suffering servant. Jesus says there in verse 43, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. The word servant there at the end of verse 33, or 43, it's diakonos, but it doesn't mean deacon. That's what it means a lot of times. It doesn't mean deacon here. Jesus is using, in a sense, to talk about a person who sees the people around them as 
his or her superior. So when you see people around you, they're your superior. And your role as a suffering servant is not to look out for your own interest only, but to look out for their interests and to serve them. You're, you as their diakonos, their, their servant, you're seeking to accomplish things for their benefit, blessing, and good even though you might have to sacrifice to make it happen, which, by the way, is the definition of gospel love. Warm-hearted endearment, warm-hearted feelings, warm-hearted emotion that leads you to sacrifice for somebody else's benefit, blessing, and good, even though they really might be undeserving. That's gospel love. And so taking on the form of this servant is to live out the second greatest commandment, to love one another. It's to fulfill the commandment, the new commandment that Jesus gave us, that we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. And he loved us as a suffering servant. Jesus says, who would ever be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Slave. Slave. Of all. How's that going? <laughs> How's your servitude when it comes to your wife, men, your children? Slave of all. That means our neighbors. That means the good neighbor, and that means the other neighbor. <laughs> slave to the people at church. Slave to the people you're around right now. Slave to your coworkers. Slave to your subordinates. Kids, teenagers, slaves to your teachers at school. Hi, my name is so-and-so. How may I serve you? Slave to your fellow students, your friends. Slaves to your brothers and sisters. What? Slaves to all. Slaves to strangers on the street or at the store. Slaves to the poor, slaves to the rich, slaves to the powerful, slave to all. Whoever would be great among you must be servant, must be your servant, and who would ever be first among you must be slave of all. And then Jesus says, and what you do when that happens, verse 45, even the Son of Man, even Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. When you serve, when you take on that form of a suffering servant, you're following in the footsteps of Jesus. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you what's going on. <laughs> because this is heavy. And we've heard a lot of heavy things lately out of Jesus' mouth. This call to discipleship, this call to, 
deny your, take up your cross. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. That is like, whoa, that is tough. The call to leave father and mother, to forsake all, to follow him, that's tough. That, that call to lose your life is tough. What's going on? This doesn't sound very gospely, Jeff. This sounds more like law. And I'll tell you, there's an aspect of it where it largely is. But what we have happening is Jesus has been exposing himself, showing us, revealing his glory, glimpse by glimpse, week by week, as we've worked through his life the last three years. And now that his life is coming to an end, he is calling us, as he called his original 12, to a level of discipleship and commitment. Do we meet that level of discipleship and commitment? No, because we all fall short of the glory of God. And so we're convicted. But those convictions just show us that we need Jesus to be our Savior. And that's why Jesus says, I've come not to be served by you all, but to serve you and to give my life as a ransom. Look, all the ways you've blown it, all the ways you've failed, Jesus says, I'm going to pay for that. I got you covered. I'll suffer for that. I'll pluck you out of the kingdom of darkness and I'll put you in the kingdom of mind. I've got that covered. And so the gospel comforts us and says, whew, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank the Lord for the Lord, right? So we're convicted, we're comforted. But I'm going to tell you, church, with the gospel comes a tremendous calling on our lives. And this is where all these commandments, all these, these calls to discipleship, they're either going to feel like some huge burdensome law to you that you cannot fulfill, or they're going to sound like life to you. Because the person who has been sprung by Jesus, who has been freed by Jesus, when he says forsake the world and follow after me, man, that is like a cup of cold water. Yes! All this chasing after the world, it's been nothing but sucking on a straw full of mud. But now that I see Jesus and that he's better than everything in every way, oh, he's calling me to follow him and to be like him. And that the path to greatness is the path to servitude. It's like, yes, that's what my soul longs for. And to the believer who begins to see Jesus more and more, we understand that Jesus is mending our brokenness. He's mending our selfishness. He's getting rid of it, cutting it out so that we will become selfless, suffering servants like him and be able to follow him and be like him and enjoy him. And before long, we're going to start sounding like Paul in Philippians 3, where we count all the things of this world is rubbish as garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ because he's better than all of it. So I think that's what's happening. <laughs> you guys doing all right? Sorry. Jesus is getting, this, his words are getting heavy. That's why he comforts us with his gospel. But church, he doesn't comfort us so we can sit around 
in our comfy chairs and do nothing. It's a call to discipleship, a call to follow him, a call to serve, to be a slave to one another. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to know you. We might know the joy of what it's like to to imitate you, to follow you, to walk as you walk. I mean, it's John, the same man we read about today, Lord, that tells us later on in 1 John chapter 2, that we ought to walk as you walked. So, Lord, help us to put down the straw, to stop sucking up the mud of the world, And help us to find that sweet intimacy day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, in which we know you're there. We walk by faith, not by sight. We do your will. We do things that are not natural, but supernatural. Because we know Jesus. We can't help but telling others about the things that we've seen, that we've heard, that we've experienced for ourselves. God, work in us. Don't let us settle for a cheap faith. Let us follow the suffering servant. Amen.